0: This poem is called Origin Story. This is true. My mother and my father met at the Greyhound bus station in the mid-80s in Chicago. My mother, all thick glass and Afro puff, came west on the train when she was 19, lived in a friend's house and cared for her children, played tambourine in a Shaka Khan cover band. My father, all sleeveless and soft eye ran away from home when he was 17, mimeographed communist newspapers and drew comic books, like this one, for sale, one dollar. My mother bought one. Love is like a comic book. It's fragile. And the best we can do is protect it in whatever clumsy ways we can. Plastic and cardboard, dark rooms and boxes. And in this way, something never meant to last might find its way to another decade, another home, an attic, a basement, intact. Love is paper. And if my parents' love was a comic book, it never saw polyvinyl never felt a backing. It was curled into a back pocket for a day at the park, lent to a friend, read under covers, re-read, hanging upside down over the back of the couch, memorized, mishandled, worn thin, staples rusted. And a love like that doesn't last, but it has a good ending. Thank you. Shy City, please join me and welcoming to the stage, the hosts of the Code Switch podcast, Shereen Marisol Miraji and Gene Denby.
1: Oh Damn. my
0: goodness.
1: Wow, that's a lot, that's a lot. What? Big up for coming out.
0: Yeah, right, this is a lot of people i told you good thing i
2: can't see them all (laughs) (laughs) so a love like that doesn't last but it has a good ending
0: yes true true story is that you oh i hope that i last (laughs) i hope i stick around oh am i the good ending yes 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 i am that's me that's me yeah yeah my parents are not together but i'm alive so it's uh,
1: (laughs) a lot of comic book imagery in your poem. Yes, there is. This week, the internet has told us that they want you to be the next writer for The Invisible Iron Man. <laughs>
0: Yes, the internet is a fickle, fickle mistress. What is
1: happening? What is, what is happening?
0: Then? Uh, so the short, not super nerdy, wonky answer is that uh, Brian Michael Bendis, who's a longtime Marvel writer, is leaving Marvel for DC, which is like a big shocker in the comics world. Uh, and he created a lot of new characters who are people of color, including mm-hmm. Miles Morales mm-hmm. and Riri Williams. A Spider-Man who, and Iron Man. <laughs> Yes, from Spider-Man and Iron Man titles. Uh, and Riri is a uh, black teen girl from Chicago. And so who, like, is a genius? And someone was like, you know who should write that is <laughs> Eve Ewing. Uh, yeah, so that's obviously very flattering and very humbling.
1: That's what's up. Mm-hmm. Eve actually has to bounce.
0: I do. We're very excited <laughs> I, I agreed already to uh, read at a, like a community justice fundraiser on the west side, mm-hmm. so I'm gonna go to that. I know, thanks, right? People are like, yes, that's a good mm-hmm. thing. Be good, have Thank fun. Thank you, Eve.
1: What's good, Chicago?
0: What is good?
1: How are you feeling, Shereen?
2: I am so nervous. Me too. We've never done this before. We have never done this before. No. And not only have we never done this before, we have never done this before in front of 1,500 people. So I cannot believe you all came out tonight. We are so grateful I'm you honored. all came out.
1: You, we question your life choices. It's cold as hell outside. I do, we
2: do. It is too cold. All right, so a little later on, we're gonna be doling out advice on some complicated questions about race. We got three Chicagoans to write to us and we invited Chi-town's Lois Lane to come help us out with that. That's Yes, Natalie y. Moore from WBEZ, 91.5, Natalie.
1: After that, we're gonna do some songs that are giving us life. This might turn into a full-blown turn-up situation.
2: But first, the special friend of the podcast is here to talk about his new documentary. Our play cousin. The Problem with Apu. He's a comedian, he's a writer, he co-hosts a podcast of his own called Politically Reactive with W. Kamau Bell. Give us your most exuberant, your loudest, your warmest applause for Hurry Condabola.
3: Oh, look at all these uh, NPR uh, FOCs. National Public Radio uh, Fans of Color.
2: Yes. <laughs> ah, yes. Yes. You do exist.
3: Yeah.
1: So, Hari has been on the podcast before. He was actually on one of our most popular and polarizing episodes. Mm-hmm. It was called The Explanatory Comma. Some of y'all might remember that episode. <laughs> it's an episode in which we discussed sort of the ins and outs of when you explain something in a story to a community that might not be the audience that you're intending to listen to. Mm-hmm. Like, you're basically explaining it to white people and what that means to the people of color who are listening to it. We got some Yeah, I
3: that. mean, it was a great Google advertisement. Because <laughs> I was like, oh, Google. you don't understand a thing? Why don't you Google it? And mm-hmm. then people are like, I'm never going to listen to your show again. <laughs> I don't understand why this can't be for me. (laughs) So we brought you on here
1: to talk about the documentary you've been working on for two years. It's called The Problem with Apu. For the two people in the audience who don't know what The Simpsons is, can you just explain who Apu, the
3: character, is? Um, Okay, there's a TV show called The Simpsons that's been on for 30 years. 20, right? And a bunch of white people made it in 1990 and they thought it'd be funny to put uh, an Indian convenience store owner in it with like a thick accent and like really one dimensional and uh, people really love the character cause uh, people are racist. And, um, <laughs> and then like 30 years later, the show's still on and uh, one of the kids who grew up watching it uh, made a movie.
2: <laughs> All right, we're gonna play some clips from that movie. Yeah. Uh, the first one doesn't need a whole lot of explaining. You're talking to Cal Penn, he's an actor. Maybe people know him from Harold and Kumar Go to White Castle. He played Kumar, and let's watch the clip.
3: I hate Apu. Hate Apu. Hate Apu. When and because of that, I dislike The Simpsons. Wow, the whole series? Yeah. The whole series? Yeah. I love The Simpsons, I just don't love that character. The whole I have thing. never been able to divorce the two. I love The Simpsons because... You hate yourself. Because uh, I completely... I... <laughs> this, this whole film is me trying to get over the fact I hate myself.
2: So you've been working on this for five years.
3: Two years.
2: Oh, I thought it was since 2012. You've been working on this.
3: No, I made a, I made a video. I made a, uh, a there was a piece on W. Kamal Bell's old show, Totally Biased, which yes. I used to, which I used to write on and was a correspondent on, and that happened five years ago when I did this piece. Okay. That okay. if I did this for five years, <laughs> oh my God, what a waste of five years. <laughs>
2: but you've been seething about Apu for twenty some odd years, right? Yeah, almost I mean, I don't thirty. Think I wasn't not I seething. Been
3: seething like, I'm a 35-year-old man. I'm not seething about a cartoon character, but... <laughs> but you felt
1: strongly enough what? about a cartoon character that you made a documentary about him.
3: I mean, I think it's the fact that that was the only representation that South Asian Americans had. Like, there was nothing else. There, there was, like, Gandhi, and so that's not... All right. And then... <laughs> and then there was, there was Apu. And, like, growing up, there was nothing else. And initially, I was so excited. Like, we have something! Like when you don't have anything, something is amazing, and then you realize, oh, that's not a good something to have. Mm-hmm. You know, when you realize that, like, oh, I'm, my, my parents, I don't want them to be seen in public because they talk this way, or when you feel like, oh, I thought I was American, but I'm not quite because I'm not represented in any way except this cartoon character. You know, that's when you start to realize, like, oh no, this is the worst thing that could have happened. Yeah, well, that's an exaggeration. There's been a lot of other things in the news. But like, that is, that's a thing that is not positive that happened. So, what's the deal with Apu's name? It's, his name is Apu
1: Nahasa Pema Pedalon.
3: I think, yes. think
2: Oh, good it. job. That was, yeah. the first,
3: that was the first pass for One Take Cove. Sure. Well the, well, the, well, the last name, uh, Nahasa Pima Pedalon, is based on a Sanskrit root uh, for a racist bullshit. <laughs> um, get it? They got long names. And Apu is based on the Apu trilogy, which is a series of films by the legendary Indian filmmaker Sachi uh, who I love. His first film Patthar Panchali is one of the greatest ones I've ever seen in my life. I like still cry at the same point. It follows a small boy through childhood to adulthood, going from a small village into a city, dealing with the hardships of day-to-day life. It's a, he's a very complex multi-dimensional character. <laughs> and uh, Matt Groening, who created The Simpsons, was a, a fan of that, and unironically, I don't think he realized how ironic it was, named you know, this convenience store character Apu. And uh, yeah, so it kind of is, is the last thing I, I'm sure he wanted. He also probably never heard of The Simpsons because he died before. Uh,
2: <laughs> so a little known fact, Apu was voiced by a white actor did you always know that a white actor did Apu's voice?
3: I'm a huge Simpsons fan, like I still am, and so I I knew who was doing all the voices. And, and when I found out, I don't remember when I was 11 or 12. It was, it was a bummer. And certainly, like you know, they used to have the Simpsons voice actors come on like late night shows to do the voices and everyone's like oh my god that's the voice from the other thing except this man is doing it you know like and people get all excited right. and every time hank azaria did the apu voice i'm like oh my god this is like school like it's like the worst thing in the world it's like you're, you're watching your bully because <laughs> it doesn't feel you know when you're seeing the cartoon you don't think of it as like minstrelsy at all right mm-hmm. Which, and I wouldn't, by the way, I want to clarify that I don't think this is equivalent to minstrelsy historically. I'm just saying it comes from the same legacy. It's a white dude in brown paint. Like, mm-hmm. that's basically, it's exactly what it is. And so you realize, like, oh, this is how white writers viewed us then and continue to view us, and that's what all the punchlines are based on. So it was really frustrating to see that, you know. So you have this voice that's from Hank Azaria that's actually based on Peter Sellers's voice wow. in this movie The Party where Peter Sellers is in brownface and he puts on this ridiculous accent oh. so this like racism is based on some old school racism right mm-hmm. and the weirdest thing about that which we didn't put in the film that I find so upsetting is that Sacha Thiry actually knew Peter Sellers wow yeah Sacha Thiry was going to make his first ever Hollywood film called The Alien and he loved Peter Sellers' work and asked him to be in the movie and they, they met, they hit it off and Peter Sellers agreed to do it and some time passes and suchit sees the party and he sees Peter Sellers in brownface doing this ridiculous accent and it was like, I can't deal with this person I can't work with this person, Like that ended that relationship wow. and what's even worse is Peter Sellers' character in that movie has a pet monkey, because of course we do, and <laughs> the pet monkey's name is Apu. Wow. wow. So, like, it was ruthless, you know? Yeah. And it's one of those things where if you don't squash racism when you see it, it mutates and mm. comes back. Because after all these years... but like that's... That's an old legacy, and we're still... I mean, this cartoon is based on this racism from the past. We still see how it lives. You tried to hunt down Hank Azaria for this movie, though. You tried I to wouldn't so say hunt down. That sounds... <laughs>
2: On the Twitter. That
3: sounds criminal. Um, <laughs> we, tried to, we tried to get Hank Azari to be in this movie, and he declined. We definitely had a, a journey. It was a lot of emails, and there was, there was actually a phone call that we had that also isn't in the movie because it was a private phone call, but mm-hmm. I don't give a shit. But like yeah. he, he said that he liked my work, and he was very appreciative of the documentary, and he didn't feel comfortable with me controlling the edit. Of, of of the uh, of, of the film, and he said a compromise would be if I agreed to do the interview with him. On either fresh air with Terry Gross or with WTF and Mark Marin. okay. So that way there'd be like there'd be accountability, right? Because if I fudge the edit, there's an actual copy that exists in the world. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if he expected me to say yes, but I'm like yes. Like this film is about accountability. Mm-hmm. It's about a critique of art. It's about an open, reasonable conversation. It's about dialogue. It's not meant to be an attack. Mm-hmm. And so I said yes, and then he waited a month, and then he still said no. He's like,
1: "Psycho's playing." I was yeah, playing. like.
3: I'm like, he's going along with it? All right. Um, and I still want to have that conversation because the movie is not really an attack on a TV show that I love. And it's not an attack on, a, on an individual. This is about representation. Who gets to represent us? Who gets to tell our stories? And even in something as, as magical as The Simpsons, there's tons of insidious racism. And that's not to say I don't love the thing. You can mm. love something and criticize it. Like, I think my mother would agree with that. And... <laughs> So, like, I mean, that's what this film's about, and I, I wanted it to be an example of you can have an open, reasonable conversation about something even as small as a cartoon character, and you can learn from each other and move past it, and unfortunately, that's not what happened, but the film is, is pretty damn good.
2: Would you have that conversation with Hank on Code Switch?
3: Yeah, of course I would. Come Hank! On.
2: Let's do this. Come through, Hank.
3: If he's not afraid of NPR FOCs, I'm all about that.
2: (laughs) (laughs) They are scary. We out here. All right, so a white guy doing an Indian accent, that's one thing. Mm -hmm. But you actually get into Indian Americans uh, being asked to do an Indian accent. And Mm -hmm. let's just watch another clip from your documentary.
3: How would you define pedanking if you were to explain what that means?
4: Patanking is being asked to speak in a broad Indian accent with broad acting. So Pattaya King was going into a room and having to do that exact thing in front of people <laughs> like a monkey.
3: <laughs> God, that music's terrible. <laughs> Isn't it? We ran out of money. This is what the budget allowed us. <laughs>
2: so patanking yes. that's the first time i had ever heard of that
3: patanking is a term that Sakina Joffrey who's in the film that you just saw in that clip Sakina Joffrey created that and she never gets the credit for it so I just want to make it clear that Sakina created that and she called it patanking because the sound of that word patanking like, that's basically the essence ah. of what people, like, the that ridiculous, that's, that's the essence of what they want to hear when they want to hear an Indian accent, Banking. <laughs> it's absurd. So that's what, that's what we call it. And it's being forced to play a certain, play a role really broadly. So if you have, like, you know, you know how to do accents, you can do, do it in va- various regions of India, you have specifics, and you go in, you study, you do the thing, yeah. At this, during this time period, they would say, that's great. Can you do the Apu one? Mm-hmm. So it didn't matter. Like, none of it mattered, because with Hollywood, and we all know this, they do the same thing over and over and over again until it stops working. And this, this worked for a really long time. So, I mean, that's what a lot of these actors ended up having to do. And I think that's important because actors are the ones that are representing a whole community, right? They end up being our ambassadors whether we like it or not and they're being put in these positions where they have to represent us poorly or they get white people to represent us in brownface.
2: And they had really complicated feelings about that, right? I mean, they didn't necessarily say, no, we're not going to take these roles because you're asking us to do an accent.
3: Right. I mean, you know, I'm a stand-up comedian so I have the privilege of I get offered a role I say no I go on the road and I'm fine I make money like I, I can still be uh, creating art if you're an actor you're beholden to someone else's ideas to someone else's money if you want to work you can't keep saying no it's a much more difficult position and also you know this we're talking about the pre Aziz era Do you know what I mean mm-hmm. this is pre Aziz and pre Mindy this is when like you didn't have people not only being in the work but creating the work owning the work and as a result, like, you, you had to take those roles. I mean, Cal talked about being in that movie Van Wilder, and like it wasn't like the name of his character in Van Wilder, it's Taj Mahal, because right. of Aww. course it was. And he didn't want to play that part, but that's what he got offered, and eventually you see him playing these better things. Asif, we didn't have this in the movie too just out of lack of time, but he talked about the number of cab drivers he played he actually had somebody he had to play a snake charmer, he didn't have to play a snake charmer, but (laughs) they offered him a snake charming role and they asked him if he had a turban and he said yes, because he really wanted that money. Yeah. And they gave it to a white guy anyway. But it was wow. like, it was still like, yeah, I have a turban. Of course I have a turban. <laughs> how like, do you? So, I mean, th- that was the position they were in at the time. And Asif went on to do great work. And him being on The Daily Show, to me, is still one of the, the greatest things that, like, I feel like in terms of South Asian representation that, that has ever happened. Like, it was huge, because we got to be ourselves.
2: Yeah, no accents.
3: No accents. And we, in the film, he says, like, he thought that um, John Stewart wanted him to do the accent. He's like, I'm not gonna do the accent. He's like, accent, no, no, no just, just be yourself. And the idea that we can talk for ourselves is, is magical. I think that's the experience that all of us have. Like we can actually say what we want to say and you can't take that from us. And also now we're in an era that we're gonna say what we're gonna say and we're gonna make you money by doing it. This, ultimately that's what this is about. Like there's an actual financial gain from Hollywood because they suppressed our stories for so long that all of them are new all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. Like, this is not, I'll, I'll be honest with you, I don't really give a what happens stop poo. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, it, it, this is old. My community's been talking about this for almost 30 years. This is old for us, right? Mm-hmm. But it's almost like the nation has to play catch up to, to actually get to where we should be. So this is part of filling in that gap. That's how I see it. Because I didn't want to keep talking about this character. There's there's other things that are far more interesting to discuss. But this does allow us to to figure out that... What was missed during that era? We get to fill in those gaps. We get to talk about how this works. And since racism and representation, it mutates from generation to generation, we could figure out how to stop it now. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I don't want this to say, like, this is the most important film in the history of the world, but I'm not going to not say that. (laughs) (laughs) So, earlier in your career, you used to do an accent. I used to do an accent when I was. 17 or 18 when I started doing stand-up mm. um, because, you know, I, I learned it was effective from watching The Simpsons, right? Like, mm. that's going to make people laugh. When you start doing stand-up, the idea of silence is horrifying. Mm. Like, you, you want to you make people laugh in every single possible moment. You don't care how it gets there. Now, I would rather perform and tell my truth and be blunt and honest. But at the time, I'm like, let's, let's, let's dance for them. Let's do what I have to do. Mm. Um, and that's what I did. I think a lot of comics of, of, of color of COCs, um <laughs> we've, we've been in that um, we've been in that position, and, and it's, it's a weird one, but like when did you stop? Uh, after 9/11 yeah. and then it gets serious. Yes he d- you didn't think I was going to bring 9/11 up. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> 9/11 happens and you know, I grew up in Queens, New York, and it's the most diverse place in the world, and I had I have so much love for Queens, and even in Queens, there were hate crimes against South Asians and Muslims and Arabs and Sikhs and whoever, like anybody with brown skin, there was, there was attacks against them even there, all around the country, but even in this place that I see is almost holy, right? And it, and it, it hurt, and, it, and I realized I have this platform, and it's limited, and people are willing to listen to me and I have to say something with meaning because the thing I, things I was saying I didn't even believe I just knew they worked mm. and as I was becoming politicized it seemed ridiculous because if you think about it, like, this is why the, the idea of representation matters, at that time you had two major representations of brown people, we're talking 2001 right, you had Apu from the Simpsons who's like the, the most regular South Asian character on television mm-hmm. you know, harmless, right kind of like there's nothing about him that is especially interesting or scary, right? He's harmless. And on the other side you have terrorists. That's the other depiction that we had. And after 9-11 what side do you think people are going to err on? You know? There's a broad range between convenience store owner and terrorist. Mm. There's a lot of humanity there. Like, after, like, uh, you know, the Las Vegas shooting happened and it was a middle-aged white guy, people weren't going after middle-aged white guys because there's a range of middle-aged white guys. Do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like, kill him! No, that's Steve Carell. Like, it's not like... <laughs> like, there's, you're not going to just do that. And that's why representation matters. You want to make sure people understand your full humanity. You know, I would love for there to be a convenience store. Oh, thank you. Thanks. Thank you, choir. Um, <laughs> I would love for there to be a convenience store owner or a cab driver or some character that actually had some authenticity to it where you can hear their stories and you could find out what they find funny because they're dealing with hundreds and hundreds of people every day and I'm sure they have stories. There's all these people that, whose voices should come out finally. And I feel like we're in an era that, you know, that could possibly happen. And this is just a reminder of let's not do that again.
2: Yes. Speaking of an era where that could happen, in your documentary, you talk about famous Indian Americans, Mindy Kaling, you brought up Aziz, the former Surgeon General Vivek Murthy. (laughs) Uh, He's in the documentary. So are we in a good place? Do you feel like you're in a good place as far as representation is concerned?
3: With regards to my personal representation? Yes. It could be better.
2: (laughs) Oh, well, yeah.
3: Um, (laughs) Yeah. I want some stuff, but um...
2: is this a happy ending? Can we leave people feeling good? or I
3: mean, yeah I mean I, I, I mean, in the era that we're in, no one should well, feel good yeah. ever, but like <laughs> <laughs> But I mean, I feel like, yeah, I mean, we're in an era where there aren't just a handful of gatekeepers. You have the internet. So somebody like Issa Rae wouldn't have been given an opportunity, then all of a sudden it's like, you're not gonna give it, right? And Issa Rae's like, I'm just gonna make it myself. And then all of a sudden, you you have Hollywood's like, oh, we're not interested. Oh, how many people are watching it? How much money can we make? You know, we've loved you since the beginning, you know? (laughs) And it's, it's, it's nonsense, but at the same time, there's something to be said about, like, we can actually control our images, and we can reach our communities and other communities, and we can create something that people want. It's not the days of three or four networks and a few studios, right, where, like, everybody wants, the, like, the biggest audience share, so they're going to pander completely to mainstream white America. There's, there's so much, whether it's Amazon or, or, or iTunes or whatever, there's so many different places where you can put stuff that, like, they want a piece of the pie. They don't want the biggest piece of the pie. And that means that all of us, uh, I don't say all of us, some of you, I don't know. but like, I think a lot, But I think that our communities actually have a chance to put something out and people are interested in what we have to say because it's never been heard, it's never been seen, and they want that particular market. Like, again, it's cynical to say this is all about capitalism, but, you know, it's true.
1: Let's give a round of applause for Hurry Kondabolu. He's a comedian and writer, a podcast host, and his new documentary is called The Problem with Apu.
2: And Hurry's gonna stay with us for our next segment that we call Ask Code Switch. Will you guys mind if he stays up here with us? Are you cool with that? All right, we're gonna be right back.
1: Support comes from Delta Airlines, who wants to make your travel experience informed, connected, and seamless. With the Fly Delta app, you'll always be able to locate your bags. The app has real time bag tracking with RFID, giving you peace of mind in your hand. Download the Fly Delta app now. Support also comes from Google Home. There are things you need to know in the morning, like the weather, your calendar, or the news. A personal assistant can just tell you those things, like the one built into every Google Home. Just say, hey Google, good morning, and the Google Assistant will tell you the latest forecast, traffic on your way to work, and even the headlines. It's a personalized briefing from an assistant that knows you best. It's a little help at home, like only Google can. So as you might uh, suspect, we get a lot of questions from listeners about race. Questions like, should I say black or African-American? Which is it? Which
2: is it? I heard black.
1: Okay, so we're going with black. We decided that today, right here. (laughs) Uh, Can I be woke and date a white person? So we get questions like this so much that we decided to just dedicate a whole advice column on our Code Switch blog to answering these questions. It's like car talk, but instead of janky carburetors, <laughs> you have racist uncles.
2: And that's how Ask Code which was born. All those racist uncles and aunts. And for tonight's show, we sorted through 300 questions and we found three from Chicago-based folks. Mm-hmm. And we are bringing a special someone here to help us sort through these questions. Uh, she's a Chicago insider. She's a reporter with WBEZ 91.5. She covers segregation and equality in the south side of Chicago. Please welcome to the stage, Natalie Wymore. <laughs> all right, all right, Natalie Wymore. Hey.
1: Natalie Wymore.
2: Uh, We're gonna go to our first question, let's hear it. Hi, my name is Haley Braden, and I live in Denver, Colorado, although I'm from outside Chicago. My question is, my extended family is made up of Southside Polish. Um, The third generation, for some of them, still live in the same neighborhood as my great-grandparents did. And many of them are adamant Cubs fans, although most Southside residents are Sox fans. I've always wondered about the race and class element to this choice. All right, before we answer that question, make some noise if you're a Cubs fan. All right, All right. make some noise if you're a Sox fan.
4: Oh! Okay. FOCs.
3: NPR P R F O C S. that's what I'm saying. So, so the we to to so
4: totally changed. I know. Right? I know, look like it's we just assumed it was gonna be Cubs fans.
1: fans. So the explanatory comma here is, uh, so the basic breakdown has traditionally been the Cubs play in the National League. They're on the white side of town, the north side of town. Uh, They play in Wrigley Field, which is of course named after the chewing gum magnate. The White Sox play, ironically, on the black side of town, on the south side, in some place called Guaranteed Rate Field.
4: (laughs) Comiskey Park. Comiskey Park. That's better. That's better. Wrigley Field is on the north side, it's in a neighborhood called Lakeview, which is very, very white. Affluent, has a frat boy element to the Mm -hmm. clubs and bars around it, if I'm being generous. And the White Sox play on the south side, actually in a mostly white, though it's getting more diverse, working class neighborhood. So these do become shorthands, like north side white, south side black, clubs white, Sox black. However, we're talking about race, so it's complicated. Yes. yes. we love to say that. For example, my family grew up liking the Sox and the Cubs. So, you know, the, the Sox won the World Series in 2005. And the Cubs won, as we all know, last year. You know, to Haley's question, I don't know her family's racial politics, so I don't know if they're saying we're Southsiders, we're not going to, mm-hmm. you know, like the White Sox. But... After the Cubs won, I saw all these black people on the south side rock- rocking Cubs gear. I don't know if they felt comfortable. So, you know, there's, it's shorthand, it's generalizations, but there's also um, many of us who believe Chicago over everything. So we're gonna root for whatever Chicago team is winning.
2: Hmm. Go Dodgers. <laughs> Our next question is from Caitlin Rosberg. She lives in Pilsen. Uh, And she's in the audience tonight, I believe. Caitlin, thank you for your question, um, but we're not gonna get to it yet. Because I don't know Chicago and I don't know anything about Pilsen. Natalie, can you just break down Pilsen for me?
4: Um, Depending on who you ask, Pilsen is either on the south side or the west side. (laughs) I think it's south side, personally. Um, Pilsen was actually originally a Czech neighborhood and today it's Mexican, Mexican Mexican-American, and it's dealing with the strains of gentrification.
2: Okay, with that, we are going to listen to Caitlin Rosberg's question.
4: How do we, particularly white Chicagoans, balance the fight to desegregate Chicago with the need to not gentrify neighborhoods? Trying to address problems with food deserts and lack of accessible public transit and education is focused on specific wards instead of citywide initiatives, and a lot of older persons won't listen to people who aren't residents in their wards. When white folks move into these communities, it often gets results, but at the cost of pushing out people of color that have lived there for generations. Well, first, I want to say I appreciate the framing of her question and understanding that, you know, people of color want nice things in their neighborhoods too. So how do we talk about development? Mm -hmm. First, I want to set the stage because I think gentrification is one of the most misused words that I hear in the city when we talk about development. Gentrification is about class, not race. They're first cousins. They go hand in hand, Mm -hmm. but gentrification, by its definition, is the displacement of lower income people who are then replaced by higher earning income people. So you could be any race and do that. So that's our baseline right here. We know that that's happening in Pilsen. What can she do? Be a good neighbor, talk to her neighbors, fight for affordable housing, lend her voice, be an ally. Don't ignore the public schools if she decides to have kids. (laughs) You know, just being a, a basic, decent human being in your neighborhood. Mm. All right.
2: And we know that Pilsen, you said, is a majority Latino neighborhood yes. that is going through some gentrification. What about the black neighborhoods in Chicago? What's happening there?
4: Gentrification ain't happening. Mm. Um, at least not on the south side. And I'm basing this answer on my 10 years of reporting at B E Z and the academic research that's out there. So, for example, Bronzeville. Everyone thought that was gentrification. You saw the displacement of lower-income people with the tearing down of the high-rise public housing, but those corridors are empty, so there was no replacement. And there Mm. still are a number of low-income people who live in Bronzeville. Mm. There was a study that was done that compared Pilsen to Bronzeville. Why did Pilsen gentrify and Bronzeville did not? Well, white people's perceptions of Bronzeville was black, crime, poverty, violent, poor. Mm. Pilsen, Cinco de Mayo, tacos, and happy margaritas. Hmm. So it was more ethnically palatable mm-hmm. for Pilsen than it was for Bronzeville. Wow. And so what we're seeing is that people want development. I mean, everybody wants nice things in their neighborhood, no matter what their, their income is. But I think the framing that we have to think about, particularly in South Side neighborhoods, Chicago is so humongous, we're so vast. And we're very diverse, but we're so segregated. And so the black neighborhoods on the south side are really dealing with trying to get over the foreclosure crisis, unemployment, mm-hmm. getting grocery stores. You know, it's a press conference in Chicago and a black neighborhood gets a, gets a grocery store. So those are more pressing issues. But when we think about desegregation, we often think about okay, white people moving into black neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. But we have Wrigleyville that we just talked about, all these gated white communities on the north side that do their very best to keep out people of color or people, you know, who don't have as many means. The neighborhoods we're in right now where this, this show is. So downtown, River North, River West... There have to be ways to get people into those neighborhoods to share within the wealth of the amenities. So desegregate white neighborhoods. Yes. There's a thing as white segregation. It's not just black segregation.
2: All right, we're going to end with a question from Melissa Rodriguez. She lives in the Burbs in Berwyn. And she's also here in the audience tonight. Thank you for your question, Melissa. Uh, Let's hear Melissa's question.
4: I'm a dark-skinned Mexican-American. There have been times when some of my light-skinned Mexican peers have said to me, you look too Mexican, or you look like a chola wearing that, when I would be wearing something as simple as a turtleneck and jean jacket. How can a situation like this be addressed next time?
2: All right. In Melissa's email, she mentioned to us that these friends of hers who are lighter skinned Latinx people, that they will wear traditional Mexican clothes. But for some reason, they tell her that she looks too Mexican when she wears like a turtleneck and a jean jacket, which further confuses Melissa about what is going on here. Uh, Natalie, you talk to somebody
4: and you have some advice from Melissa, right? I do. So, this question is deep in colorism, Mm -hmm. class, colonialism. (laughs) You know, if we turn on Univision right now, we're going to see mostly light skinned Latinos. Until this week. Until Until this week, week. they got an Afro Afro Latina. Um, So, there has been this erasure of, you know, Afro Latinos, of indigenous people. So she's not in the audience tonight, but I reached out to Adriana Diaz, who is a nonprofit communicator, and her response, Melissa, was, she feels frustration and empathy for you, but she also says there's a way to spin this to the people who are asking you. And so ask them, well, what do you mean when you say, I look too Mexican? And if you turn the question back to the person, it forces them to confront whatever their anti, insert whatever (laughs) Mm. bias is. And she also said, put your light-skinned friends to work. Get them into the conversation. Make them help answer this question.
1: Let's put light-skinned people to work in general. Put (laughs) light-skinned
4: people to work. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: (laughs) Hurry. South Asians have colorism issues.
3: The last place the colonizer leaves is your mind, right? And I Mm. feel, (laughs) but I think, (laughs) but I think, (laughs) <laughs> and you see that... I mean, we created a cream called Fair and, and Lovely Cream, right? Fair and Lovely. And it's the stuff that's supposed to be skin-lightening cream. And that's it's very successful in South Asia. Like, it's, it's a big thing because everybody wants to be lighter. But it's something we're obsessed with, and, and some of it comes from, you know, the old country. Like, in India, in Bollywood, everyone is light-skinned. Everybody. Like, you don't have, like... When they say, oh, she's, like, a dark-skinned actress, I'm like, she's lighter than me. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's always... Like a really light-skinned person. The worst example I remember is there's this actress. I think her name is Amy Jackson. She wasn't an actress. She was a beauty pageant contestant in Birmingham, England. It's a white girl, and a Bollywood producer saw her and brought her to India to be an actress. Except she would she would pretend to be Indian, and someone would just (gasps) dub over her voice. Wow. Yeah. And and his excuse was that like you know like she has Indian features, which is weird. Out of a billion people, there's a lot of Indian women that have Indian features. I mean, that's, that's one thing that Indian women historically have been known for, is yes. <laughs> Indian features. Um, so it's deep, man. Like, it, it, it's. Um, Do
2: you it's, have any advice for Melissa and what she's going through? Yeah, I mean, I think you have
3: to... I mean, I wouldn't say the whole colonizer line I say, because people are like, alright, I get it. Okay. Yeah. But I think... I mean, I think you have to talk about, like, their own experiences with racism, like, what do you experience? Think about the fact that I have to deal with it on the outside, and I have to, like, deal with it from you. Yeah, Mm. my friends. You have to, like, I think sometimes you have to reach people in terms of where they're at. It's like when I talk to, to, like, white women about racism, I try to talk about it in terms of, like, think about how you didn't get paid what you deserve for a job. You got paid more than the minorities, but you still didn't get paid (laughs) what you deserve. Important caveat. But, like, you have to reach people where they're at. And I think that's one way to do it. Like, they will understand, yes, I've been discriminated against, and I didn't know I was doing that to my own friend.
2: Punto, as Piri Tomas would say. Rest in peace.
4: We just solved racism, right? We, we did. Just solved we solved racism. We just solved
2: racism. So, I know all of you in the audience have a lot more questions. Don't worry. Because right now we're working on a special holiday themed episode of Ask Code Switch. Email us your questions and anxieties about race and identity that come up when the holidays roll around, and we know that they do.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Our email is codeswitch at npr.org.
1: We want to thank everyone who asked us questions for Ask Code Switch, and we thank Natalie for your reporting and insights for Ask Code Switch. Right. Melissa
2: Kay- Thanks for kicking Curry, in with us. You're
1: all right. Hurry's documentary comes out next week. It's called The Problem with Apu. Next Sunday on True TV. All
2: right. So to wrap the show, Gene uh, and I are going to tell you the songs that are giving us life right mm-hmm. now. Want to start off? So Puerto Rico's been on my mind a lot lately. Puerto Rico. Are there any Puerto Ricans in the audience? Clap if you are. Ah, my Boricuas, Yes. And just to get through things, I've been listening to a lot of salsa, and Victor Manuel is a Puerto Rican salsero. Clap if you know who Victor Manuel is. And he has this great song called Que Suenen Los Tambores, which I absolutely love and I've been playing on repeat. The video opens with a wonderful quote, and it's in Spanish, and I'm going to try and read it for you. All right, so bear with me here. En un mundo donde la oscuridad y el silencio han amordazado la esperanza, que la música sea la luz y la fe sea la palabra, para que vengan tiempos mejores, que suenen los tambores.
1: Yes! yes.
2: So here's the loose translation in English of that. In a world where darkness and silence has muted hope, music is the light and faith is the word. To bring back better times, bring on the drums. All right, Jeannie, what you got?
1: So late in the spring, we did this episode on, of Code Switch on house music, which of course got to start here in Chicago. House music has some very uh, complicated racial dynamics. But when we were rabbit holing doing the reporting uh, for that episode, our editor, Sammy Yenigan, who is a big house music fan, put me onto this song. It is a house edit of a gospel song called Jesus Can Work It Out. The song is by this dude named Charisma. And the house song is Work It Out. <laughs> Work it out Work it. So this is my like Get up in the morning Like I'm about to run some miles Like I'm gonna need to run through a wall um, Everything is messed up Like we, the stuff we cover can be so depressing Right it's really easy to slide in fatalism I think we have like a, We have a lot of dark humor on our scene but every now and again, you just need to remember that like some of this stuff is gonna work itself out, but it won't work itself out unless we do the work, right? So that is my,
2: well this
1: is my, my jam. This is the song that's giving you life.
2: And we want to hear from you. We want to hear the songs giving you life. So tweet at us, use the hashtag CodeSwitchLive. live. Ooh.
1: Before we go tonight, special thanks to the WBEZ Podcast Passport Series for bringing us to Chicago. This series is curated and produced by WBEZ's Tyler Green. More shows in this series at wbez.org slash events.
2: Also thanks to WBEZ's events team. That's Haley Carlson, Ashley Thorpe, Mary Kathleen Nadelson, Simon Tran, and Mindy Zhang. The WBEZ recording engineer was Colin Ashmead Bobbitt. Support your local station, that's WBEZ, because supporting your station is how you support us. Pop Culture Happy Hour, The Politics Podcast, and all the other NPR podcasts you love. But you love us the most, we know.
1: Yes. Special thanks also to The Fest, which is a new podcast festival curated by the Third Coast International Audio Festival. Shout out to Johanna, Maya, and Emily from the Fest for co-presenting this live show.
2: And a special thanks to our volunteers tonight. That means they did stuff for free. So yes. let's give them a round of applause. And back at NPR, our thanks to Anya Grundman, Neil Carruth, and the NPR events team and visuals team. And thanks to producers Jessica Reedy, Leah Donella, Walter Ray Watson, Maria Paz Gutierrez, our editor, Sammy Yennigan, and our executive producer, Steve Drummond. Big shout out to the rest of the Code Switch team. Woo. <laughs> we love you.
1: Thanks to everybody here at the Harris Theater. I'm Gene Dumby.
2: and I'm Shereen Marisol Meraji.
1: Chicago, be easy. Peace. The music you heard on this episode. Is original music composed by Ramtin Arablouei.